0: So this week, we'll talk about machine learning researchers and machine learning engineers, and we will talk about what they can learn from each other. So we have a special guest today, Mikhail. Mikhail is a a double founder. So he's a founder of a machine learning consultancy company. This company helps with solving tough business problems. He's also a founder of Confetti, Confetti AI, AI, which is an educational platform uh, for learning data science and machine learning. Before that, Mikhail uh, worked as a senior machine learning scientist at Amazon Alexa. So welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you. It's really great to be here. I'm a huge fan of uh, your work, Alexi, and also the Data Talks Club. So really happy to be here.
0: Yeah, thanks for for your words. So before we go into our main topic of uh, machine learning researchers and machine learning engineers, let's start with your background. So can you tell us uh, a few words about your career so far?
1: Sure, sure, sure. So I've been in machine learning about close to a decade now, and my entry point into machine learning was more from the academic standpoint. So I studied computer science and AI at Stanford, and in addition to just ordinary coursework that I did while I was there, I had the really great pleasure and, and fortune of working in the NLP group. So I worked with a lot of the really uh, big names in NLP in the world, including Chris Manning, Chrissy Liang. Chris Potts, and, uh, and Dan Juravsky. And one of the, the first real entry points of the machine learning research that I had was actually helping to lead a project in collaboration with Ford, which is the big car automaker, where we were investigating uh, new methods and neural network, ne- primarily neural network-based techniques to conversational systems. And so we were building a lot of new ar- architectures and, and building out new data sets and resources to really tackle this problem of deep learning for conversational systems. After Stanford, I actually joined a self-driving car startup in San Francisco called RideOS, where I was there as one of the very early employees and got to get that first taste of what startup life is like. And uh, the focus of the company was actually a lot more on building a real-time data platform for optimizing and coordinating the movements of fleets of vehicles on the road. And so it was really fundamentally uh, a problem about engineering and, and really how can we do things very efficiently. Um, and so I was there, you know, for a while. And when I left, I, I went to actually help start a new team at Amazon Alexa, which I've often described as a bit of like a Google brain-esque effort within Alexa. So it, um, it was similar in that way in that the charter of the team was really kind of to sit at this intersection between research and engineering and so we did a lot of thinking about what is research and conversational systems look like today and how can we contribute to the research but we also were always constantly thinking about how can a lot of these advances make their way into the Alexa platform and and how can we do that effectively so that we can deliver customer value so really that was this nice hybrid of both the engineering and the research that came together in this nice way while I was there and then Along the way, as, as you described, I've always been interested in education, so building tools and platforms to help people learn things, um, Confetti being the most recent example of that. And then, yeah, nowadays I'm, I'm doing a lot of consulting, working with a lot of companies across different verticals to help them solve their toughest business problems using data-driven and machine learning techniques.
0: Yeah, that's that's pretty cool and uh, so you worked at stanford in the nlp group and then you went to a self-driving company so i'm wondering how did it happen yeah. what does nlp have in common with uh, self-driving so how did yeah. you convince them to actually hire you
1: <laughs> uh that's uh, that that question they would maybe have to answer how i how they picked me, I don't know, but uh you know from a problem domain standpoint, I think you're right, in that there's maybe there doesn't seem to be as much overlap uh in some ways I would agree that there's fundamentally you know they're very different problems, though I would say that they're, they're like when you think of self driving compared to n l p, the difficulty of the problems they do have a very similar characteristics i mean they're they're both very long tail problems right where a lot of the complexity comes in everything that happens after you've achieved 80% accuracy. I think that in NLP, as in, as in self-driving vehicles, it's we can do pretty well on 80% of the phenomenon, but really the hardest part is everything that happens in that long tail. And so those characteristics make them very similar. But I think that for me, a lot of what drew me to uh, going into you know this particular company was that there was a really high like the, the, the team was really just phenomenal. I mean, it was a very high performance engineering team of people that had built a lot of amazing systems at Uber and Tesla and, and, and different, and Apple, in fact. And so, you know, we can, we'll, I'm sure we'll get into this, but a lot of what I've been thinking about coming out of research was like, how do I become a better engineer? And so I felt like I should just throw myself into some really hard engineering problems and work with some really good engineers to become a better engineer. And so that was a lot of the motivation there.
0: Was it the, your biggest problem uh, when you were transitioning from uh, academia world to, uh, you know, industry world, uh, like this engineering aspect, or was it something yeah,
1: that's, else? Yeah, that's right, that's right. So I think that when I was at Stanford, we were we were solving a lot of interesting problems, and I think we did do a lot of interesting research, um, you know, that I'm that I'm really happy with. But a lot of the times when I was working on things, I felt that my engineering chops were maybe at the, not the level where I felt I was doing things as effectively or as efficiently as I could. And so there was an element of, you know, like you're you're doing things and, and you're building things, but maybe at times I felt like even as I was setting up some infrastructure, I was kind of fumbling through it a little bit. And that felt, it, it's, it's not just that, you know, maybe the code wasn't the cleanest, which research code tends not to be the cleanest. I mean, it's not known to be the cleanest. And you know, that's maybe not appealing from an aesthetic standpoint. I think that the bigger problem for me was that I was, I'm, I'm a very relentless optimizer with time. I like to do things very efficiently and effectively. And when you're, when you see that, like, there's maybe deficiencies in how you're doing something, I thought, okay, I need to, I need to spend the time to really build out that funda- foundation and get better in those engineering things and start to ask yourself these questions about, okay, how do I go from a proof of concept model or something to something that can interact with you know tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in a scalable way, and that's something that you don't really get to see in research uh, too often because that's not really the problems that researchers think about. And so, I think you know making that transition, going from a very research-minded way of thinking about things to now, hey, build something that works and is robust, uh, is was really one of the bigger challenges.
0: Mm-hmm. And you you mentioned you were setting some infra as a researcher. I think that's yeah. Uh, uh, Quite uncommon for a researcher to set up infra to begin with, right? So that's probably yeah, uh, something.
1: I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I say infra, it's, it's probably not infra in the most robust sense. I meant even just like standing up web services. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you're setting up an annotation task and you have to interface with Amazon Mechanical Turk or you have to, you know, do any of these things, uh, we were collecting audio data. And so being able to stream audio data over the web was difficult at times and so you know eventually got done and 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 it worked but it was it was not the cleanest and prettiest when it did work and and so so i thought there's got to be a better way than this Mm.
0: yeah so basically you worked first as a researcher then you worked more as an engineer in the self driving uh, startup and Mm -hmm. then you joined uh, amazon uh, to work in a hybrid mode right so your your official position was uh, ml researcher right yeah it was it was a
1: scientist by title but it was scientists at amazon can mean a lot of things i mean there's there's scientists that really focus primarily on engineering and there's scientists that are literally just researchers and the way my role was set up is there was a lot of flexibility in the stuff that i was working on especially because it was a new team i mean it was literally just my manager and i started so i got to almost actually by necessity i had to do a lot more engineering because when we started there was just two of us by the time i left there was maybe 20 or so people in the team so a lot of the engineering and setting up of infrastructure and setting up of code bases and all these things kind of fell on me by default um i mean which i liked i i did actually like doing those things i mean because of my prior experience in engineering i thought well this is super fun anyway i mean research is fun but this is also fun Um, and so fundamentally i ended up doing a lot of both i wrote a lot of papers but i also built systems that ended up found their way into the lexa platform
0: yeah, that's pretty cool. So you basically, you managed to look at uh, both, uh, to be in the both uh, worlds. So you, you saw how it's, things are done from the researcher's point of view and how things are done from engineering point of view. And then at Amazon, you were doing both,
1: right? That's right, that's
0: right. And, and uh, maybe you can tell us um, what actually a machine learning researchers do. So what kind of problems do they solve and yeah. what uh, what do they use for solving these problems?
1: Absolutely. Yes. So machine learning researchers tend to focus a lot more on open-ended problems. And these are open-ended problems from the scientific standpoint. So there's a way of thinking about things where you don't really know if something is going to work, right? Researchers tend to be very hypothesis-driven. They will look at something and say, all right, how can I improve this through some modeling advancement or some architectural change or something? How can I do that? And a lot of it does tend to be driven by hypothesis. So you don't know if it's going to work up front, but you are, you know, you run experiments and you run experiments deliberately and sort of methodically to try and validate those, those, those hypotheses. And so there's a lot of reading of papers, you know, seeing what other people are doing and then writing of papers when you maybe discover something interesting. And I think as far as tooling is concerned, there's a a lot of the tools that researchers in machine learning primarily use are ones that enable really fast prototyping and really fast validating or invalidating of hypotheses. So a lot of the usual suspects come up, things like Jupyter Hub, notebooks. They come up a lot, and then tools like and platforms like weights and biases, you know, things that allow you to keep a very detailed experimental log that allows you to invalidate or or confirm your hypotheses.
0: Can you think of an example of such a hypothesis? Like, what could it be? An open-ended yeah. and scientific. Uh...
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so a lot of um, you know, the nature of machine learning research today is it's a lot about benchmarks, right? There's the, like benchmark data sets and something where you know, you, uh, there's leaderboards in some cases, but, you know, so those are like formal leaderboards that come up, but really there's some community agreed upon data set that people are trying to improve.
0: Like probably. ImageNet, right?
1: Yeah, like ImageNet is a good one for, for computer vision, but you, know, you can think of like Squad in the case of uh, question answering for NLP, uh, and there's like so many i mean the, but that's really how machine learning research has evolved is centering around these different benchmarks um, because it's a way of standardizing and making sure that everyone's talking the same language in some sense and uh, and you can imagine that when you're trying to improve the performance on these these data sets sometimes even just by really really small amounts you might say okay this existing architecture uses you know this one particular um, you know this model uses one particular kind of architecture what if I use a special kind of cross attention between maybe the encoder and the decoder of something? And does that allow you to maybe propagate some information from the encoder to the decoder so that then downstream you have uh, an increase in performance? And so you might try that, you might build your model in such a way that you try and capture some of that signal and then see if it works. I mean, it's a lot of this kind of thinking through uh, about these different architectures.
0: So if it works, you publish a paper. And if it doesn't, what happens then?
1: Well, then you're back to square one. Then you're, then you're back to the drawing board a lot of the times. But, but I mean, I think that there is, uh, you know, it doesn't always have to be just the, it doesn't always just have to be squeezing out like a half a percentage points um, by getting that perfect architecture. There was, there's some papers that I've written in the past um, where we were just showing that you can use very really simple things to do maybe comparably well. As much more difficult architectures, and so there is even a line of work that's about how do I reduce the complexity of something without giving up on you know without giving up on performance, and that can be reducing complexity in terms of the architecture or reducing complexity in terms of the model size or anything like that. Um, but yeah, fundamentally, if you if you can squeeze out percentage points of, of, of improvements and you write a good story, that ends up being a paper most of the time. Yeah.
0: How do you need to? Uh... Like where do these uh, open-ended questions come from so do you have to come up with uh, them yourself does your professor tell you about them or you work with uh, I don't know companies uh, from the industry right. Um, right. How, how do you come up with these problems
1: yeah there's there's different uh, there's different ways I think uh, in, in the early parts of, of a researcher's career I think it's it's always very common to start by just surveying what's out in a field right so so nowadays I think a lot of researchers have done good jobs of literally producing survey papers where they talk about the high-level problems that that a certain field is talking about, and and that's you know, and they'll include all the relevant citations. Uh, and then you'll end up doing, I mean, if you read these surveys, uh, especially when you know early in my research career, is you just do what is effectively like depth-first search through the citation landscape, right? Where you're like, okay, here's a paper, here's a bunch of links. I understand this. I don't understand this. Okay, but this links to something else, and you just kind of go down this rabbit hole of how are people thinking about problems and what have they thought about before. And if you do this enough, and then you keep kind of going down this rabbit hole, eventually you get a really good sense for how are you know what's what's the state of the art look like today. Um, and sometimes you'll discover that something that maybe you're hypothesizing or thinking about doesn't yet exist. Or maybe you'll see that someone sort of thought about something similar in the past, but they never, maybe they didn't flesh out this one particular detail. And so then you think maybe what if I combine what I'm thinking with maybe what they're thinking, can we, you know, is there something new to come out of there? Like this so future of,
0: work section, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Future works. A lot of the times, I think that's one fantastic aspect of research is if you go right down to the, you know, typically the end of a paper, they'll have the conclusion and they'll have like three or four open questions where they'll say like, Hey, we did really awesome work. But there's like a few things we're not so sure about. So maybe you guys can like think about this in the future. And, and so then that's actually a good place to find motivation as well. Um, but then you know, also depending on how hands-on your 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 the researchers that you're working with are, they can also just give you ideas, um, especially early in, in a researcher's careers. You know, a lot of professors will have their own agendas and and kind of a broad class of things that they're thinking about, and so they'll they they're happy to share that. Um, because that's why they hired you, right? In some sense, was to pursue a lot of their own research
0: questions yeah so basically you are there on your own right so maybe there are some tips coming from your supervisor right. from the professor right. but you're doing this breadth first search yourself right you're reading these papers you're trying to have a picture in your mind what is the state of the art right so it's all on you that's right, right? so that's you right. have a lot of independence uh, right. there there's a blessing and, and a
1: curse a blessing and a curse for sure yeah.
0: Okay. And uh, so you did this for some time and then you joined this uh, startup, uh, self-driving startup, and you worked as an engineer. So what do machine learning engineers do? What kind of problems do they solve? And what do you do? What do they use for that?
1: Yeah. yeah. So unlike the the sort of open-ended questions that researchers tend to think about, machine learning engineers tend to be more focused on the full machine learning life cycle. So a lot of what they think about is, whereas a researcher might train a model and their work is done. They might say, okay, I have my pickle file, I have my binary, whatever, you know, that's it. And maybe I've confirmed or invalidated hypothesis. An engineer is really responsible for maybe going the next step and saying, okay, now that I have the model, how do I handle all the other aspects of making a fully fledged system that uses machine learning? And so, you know, that systematic aspect has a lot of things that fall under, under the purview you know, of it, including. Deployment, right? How do I scalably deploy something? How do I make sure that there's uptime? How do I monitor that something is, is working all the time? And so a lot of it really does have to do uh, with those engineering aspects. I mean, machine learning engineer, of course, there's engineering that has to, that that it's involved in that. But I think that in some sense, the the machine learning is, uh, the way the field has progressed, the machine learning aspect of it has become actually an even smaller part of, of the role. Um, Nowadays, you might only have to do 20% of your time on machine learning, even that, and really 80% the heavy lifting is the engineering. And So when I think about tooling that falls into uh, ML engineers toolkit, there's some of the usual suspects around modeling. I mean, you're almost certainly going to be using PyTorch or TensorFlow or some high-level modeling library, but a lot of your toolkit is also going to involve these more traditional engineering tools, right? Docker to help with reproducibility or um, being very comfortable with the cloud provider to deal with cloud infrastructure, whether that's AWS or GCP or Azure or whatever. Um, And then being very comfortable with a web framework, right? Something like FastAPI or Flask, depending on the language that you're using for your backend services. And so it's really this combination of, of some machine learning, maybe not as much now as it was before, but then a lot, a lot of engineering.
0: Okay, so researchers, they ask themselves open-ended questions, they come up with hypotheses. they test them, and then maybe if it works out, they come up with a better architecture. They have this Pico file or model file, PyTorch model file, whatever. And then uh, yeah, if it happens in a company, I don't know about university, but in a company, they can go to their fellow machine learning engineers, their colleagues and say, okay, we have this uh, file, uh, let's now figure out how to actually deploy this, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right.
0: And uh, what about data science? Uh, what is it? Is it more engineering or is it more research?
1: Yeah, uh, it's, it's a really good question. I think it's one that... Um, data science has changed a lot, I think, in the last, you know, kind of eight to ten years, maybe five to ten years. I think that at a high level, uh, data science has really gone through different phases. when. Data science really began as a field. Uh, I think it was this like huge umbrella term. I mean, it still is an umbrella term, but especially then, you know, what I think of as like data science 1.0, which is when all of a sudden companies and, and, and different groups realized that there was a lot of data that was coming in that had to be processed in some way. That was being combined with the fact that there were new modeling advancements where now people were trying to see how can, you know, maybe I extract some insight from the, that those new data sources that, were, that we have. But what ended up happening, I think, is that people just you know, went on hiring splurges and they just hired a bunch of data scientists to do data, whatever that meant. And uh, there wasn't really like a clear strategy about how, what does it mean to extract insight from data and how do you do that in a way that actually helps a company, as an example. Um, and so that was really data science 1.0. I think that now we're really living through what I consider data science 2.0, which is where we are starting to realize and develop systems for going from, you know, extracting data insights to then something that's commercially viable and that can deliver value to people um, and kind of building out that pipeline and building up that system is, is something that we're really refining nowadays um, so that it is really a lot of times more engineering than it is science um, but you know that's not to say that science isn't there there absolutely is science there but it's something where uh, the tools have become so good on the scientific standpoint that now there's really just a lot more of an emphasis on improving the tooling on the engineering standpoint to make that transition from science to engineering more seamless, Um, and really just setting yourself up for success to do that.
0: I also think in data science, often you also, like in research, you often don't know if your idea is going to work, right? like in research. So you still have this experimentation uh, aspect. You still have, uh, you you need to come up with a hypothesis, then you need to prove yourself, uh, to to prove this, uh, that this hypothesis work. Uh, maybe come up with a POC and then deploy it right So then also have uh, the engineering part there to show that okay, this hypothesis work now let's roll it out to all the users okay. right So it's kind of a combination okay. of of both
1: worlds. yeah, I think that uh, I don't think there is a single data science or machine learning team out there even if they're doing something that doesn't seem like it's very novel from a research standpoint that doesn't have some experimentation. like just the nature of doing data driven and machine learning work is such that even if you're just reproducing a paper, you have to run experiments. You're gonna to have to, you know, deal with issues of reproducibility, building proof of concepts. You know, oh, they say one thing on the paper, I'm not seeing the same results here. I mean, you know, there's always this disconnect that happens there. And so you're absolutely right. I think that data science just anywhere, regardless of the level of sophistication in an organization, will involve some level of science.
0: Mm-hmm. So, what do you think machine learning engineers and researchers can learn from each
1: other. It's the core, it's the core of the talk, yes. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think it's a I think it's a really it's a, it's a very interesting question honestly because I've I've worn a lot of different hats in in my career and depending on the room that I'm in and that I've been in you deal with like people that think very very differently. There is actually this this pretty big disconnect between how scientists and, and researchers think about things and how engineers tend to think about things. And, and I think some of the problem, you know, these are actually problems that I've seen is, is sometimes these two roles don't really appreciate each other or what the other con- contribute to one another. But I really do believe that in the best of all possible worlds and the best of all possible organizations are ones where they see that really the best things happen when they work together very closely and they, and they collaborate very closely. Um, that's where I've seen the best work, the fastest work being done. And so concretely speaking, I think that, When I look at like a researcher, what what does a researcher have to learn from an engineer? I think that you know, engineers tend to think about things in terms of very deterministic systems, right? They build systems that are very robust and that better, they have this very kind of like expected, predictable sort of path through. There's a lot of rigor in how engineers build systems. And that's not something that we typically think of when we think of researchers. I mean, researchers are sort of like, more like exploratory they think about these ad hoc problems you know they think about hey what happens if i do this and it maybe doesn't have the same level of structure that an engineer will have but uh i think that if you adopt some of the practices around engineering even at just like a low level around programmatic aspects you know about how you code something if that's testing more thoroughly if that's using things like static typing one i think that'll make you much more effective but then I think that engineers are also really good at, they have very scrappy way of doing things, right? When an engineer faces a problem, they are very good about just sort of saying like, all right, roll up your sleeves, like let's dive into any part of the stack we need to, to solve the problem. And so they really are comfortable going across the full stack. Whereas researchers, a lot of researchers that I've worked with in the past, they sometimes have this mentality of, well, you know, certain problems are beneath me and then maybe, Like, I really just think about science. I really just think about research. I don't really think about, you know, how I I don't want to think about how to spin up an EC2 instance or something like that. That's just not something they concern themselves with or even or want to concern themselves with. But I think it's a pretty destructive mindset, honestly, because if you don't think about things and you aren't comfortable with some of these engineering aspects, then you're going to introduce dependencies, your dependencies on your own work, right? Like if you want to do something even if you're a researcher, if you want to do something, you're going to have to use a cloud provider. And so if you don't know how to use that, then you're going to have to depend on someone else just to even do the most basic things. And that's just something, you know, that'll slow you down. I don't think it's the best way to do things. And so I think adopting some of that scrappiness is really useful for researchers. And then I think on the, the other, like the, the, the counter side, I think that researchers have a lot of things they can offer to engineers as well. I think that researchers are really good at handling uncertainty, um, and really dealing with, with situations of uncertainty. This is something that happens in machine learning all the time, right? I mean, we talk about uncertainty in hypothesis-driven research, but even for any company that's doing any machine learning, there's a whole lot of uncertainty that, that building machine learning model introduces. Like, will it work? Will it work as good as I think it will? I don't know. It's hard to say. But uh, but researchers are incredibly comfortable with that way of thinking about things because that's all they do is they think about things in in kind of probabilities, right? Like there's some chance this works and some chance it doesn't work. But engineers, especially ones that are classically trained, are maybe not super comfortable with that, you know, that level of uncertainty in their work. They really want if then, like that kind of strict, you know, if then sort of relationship Um, because it, it makes sense, right? I mean, if you've written, if you deal with engineered systems, You've never asked yourself, will I be able to query my database or will I be able to write to my database? I mean, you just expect these things will happen. Uh, so I think researchers can certainly, you know, engineers can adopt some of that uncertainty driven way of thinking. And, and then I do also think there's researchers tend to be better running experiments than engineers do. I've definitely worked with engineers in the past where, you know, they'll build something and they'll sort of run some experiments or maybe they'll, they'll conclude that maybe a model isn't as good as they think it is. And really it's just because they're coming to those conclusions because they haven't maybe been as deliberate about hyperparameter tuning or refining you know, some aspect of the model, which researchers are super good about doing that. I mean, they you know, maintain very clear experimental logs. They'll make sure that when, when I say that this hypothesis doesn't work, like you can be pretty certain that there's confidence intervals, you know, we've calculated p-values, all these things. Uh, so researchers are just really good about being rigorous in those aspects of of machine
0: learning work. Yeah, I remember when I was going from being a software engineer to being a data scientist, I really struggled with uh, maintaining this experimentation log. I had such a mess and it was just too difficult to find out what's going on. So so you said that uh, what researchers can learn from engineers is uh, for structuring your projects also including code like uh, have some structure there and not uh, um, like it will help you have less mess in your in your code then okay. uh, be comfortable with uh, stepping outside of your comfort zone comfort zone so you uh, uh, you don't say okay i don't know how to do this you can just try different things and this yeah. way you don't depend on the others you don't wait till somebody uh, comes up, uh, comes to you and helps you to press this uh, create instance button on AWS. Yeah, right. Right. right? That's uh, two things that uh, they can learn. Yeah. Um, and then what the engineers can learn from researchers is how to handle uncertainty, uncertainty how to be comfortable with yeah. uncertainty. Um, so it's not always if then, right? It's not always a set of strict rules. Mm-hmm. There are sometimes uncertainty. And they can learn how to be good with experiments, how to maintain this experimentation work, right? That's Did it. I miss anything?
1: I think that's right. Yeah, that's
0: right. And you, you also said that uh, so there is a lot of disconnect between researchers and engineers. And yeah. I imagine that, especially if you're at university, you don't always have industry partners. Yeah. And uh, yeah. it's also very like your. You're working independently, you know, you have like 100 papers, you're doing this breadth-first search, breadth search there, right? So you're kind of, you start living in your bubble, right? And uh, you, you don't necessarily have this connection with the real world, like how things are done yeah. uh, in the industry. And then when it comes to engineers, they also don't always work with data scientists. And yeah. then you said, yes, yeah, so they don't necessarily appreciate what each other are doing what the others are doing yeah. and the great things happen when you put them in one room right so maybe yeah. can we talk about that a bit so how how can we put them together in one room so how can businesses and organizations uh, you know take them and uh, yeah uh, take best from from the efforts
1: yeah yeah I, I mean i think it's it's a hard problem Uh, And it's not one that I think any organization has really solved completely. Because part of the work, you know, part of the work in doing that comes from a cultural aspect, right? I mean, if you imagine that researchers are accustomed to being with researchers in the same room or maybe by themselves in their own room, uh, and then you have engineers that are so accustomed to working with other engineers, I mean, they're really just fundamentally different ways of, of thinking about things. And I do think that there's a certain aspect where, leaders that oversee these kinds of hybrid organizations do have to make an effort to, to encourage, you know, this cross-pollination, right. And making sure that, that people do understand that there is value that, that comes from each of the other organizations. I mean, I, I've definitely been in teams and, and work with teams where, where there really is like almost, I wouldn't say like strong resentment, but there is like a resentment where like, Oh, an engineer talking about like a data scientist or a data scientist talking about an engineer and they're just like oh like what what are they even doing like I don't they don't really know what they're talking about or you know they're all they do is they, you know they don't even like write good code and you know so there's really that that kind of level of uh that, those types of attitudes sometimes I mean they're not always that toxic but but you know at a more kind of lower level sometimes they're just yeah I don't really get what they do and I don't know how they do it. Um, So I think part of it is cultural, and I think that you have to encourage cross-pollination within your organization, where you've put people in situations where they work together. I think that different organizations have tried over the last, you know, five, 10 years of of the progression of data science and machine learning. They've tried different models for how to to integrate machine learning into an engineering organization. And I think there's a few models that I'm pretty, I, I feel like I've never seen really work. I mean, I've seen a number of different models, places where I've worked few models that I haven't seen work really well are where you just like silo off, like the researchers from the, uh, you know, silo them off from the engineers and they, they literally create this almost separate units and, and, you know, you you kind of think, all right, well, maybe they're doing this because on a lot of places, having the strict lines make it clear what the responsibilities are. And that's great. But I think that in practice, what that ends up doing is you get this, like, throw the model over the wall kind of approach, right? Where you have a researcher that builds something and they, they, you know, they built it and they're like, Hey, engineer, go, go handle this. Engineer gets the model. They write some inference code on top of the model. They deploy it. Model isn't doing well. Someone starts yelling at the engineer. The engineer says, Oh, well, I, I didn't, I don't know what's going on here. I don't even know what the model is doing. goes back to researcher. Researcher says like, well, your inference code is wrong or Did I even give you the right pickle file? I mean, you know, so there's like, there's all kinds of latency and just like bad stuff that happens when you really separate these two. What's
0: worse, uh, engineers sometimes want to, instead of using, let's say, if researchers wrote code in R, they want to rewrite it in Java. And when you rewrite the code from R to Java, things uh, break right and then it's in production and then the researcher says okay but you know what like this piece of our code is actually i have no idea what your java code is doing but it seems like maybe this part is not correct right and then the the engineers think "Okay, like what is that even that like why do you use this (laughs) funny language
1: all all true I, i i've i've seen these things happen i've i mean honestly some of the funny stuff i've seen is I remember being in like a debugging session where where literally we were trying to, we were taking like the, we were hashing model files to make sure that we were passing the right model files, you know, from one place to the next. And so you're literally looking at like the byte representations of something to make sure that there wasn't, that somebody had maybe used an earlier version of a model or something. And so, uh, you know, even funnier stuff like that. But um, yeah, so I think that, you know, th- this kind of siloed off approach is really bad. I mean, because it, it reinforces the, the exact disconnects that tend to happen. I think that the far better approach that I've seen in organizations is one where they are, especially from a business standpoint, when they do are just like embedded right next to each other, where you have engineers and researchers working together hand in hand. Uh, I think that, you know, so literally like, this is typically in the context of like a product, you'll have the scientist and the researcher literally in the same room uh, or in the same kind of office space working on things. and so. You can imagine that introduces a lot of speed. I mean, there's not as much of a communication latency. There's also a lot more of a, uh, you know, there's diffusion of knowledge, where all of a sudden, researchers are seeing what does it mean to actually put something into production? What are the things that engineers are doing? And vice versa, the engineers are saying, oh, you know, they're getting more insight into what the model is doing. And so you really this like hand in hand kind of collaboration is great. I've honestly seen, you know, in the extreme case, I've even seen organizations where even the researchers have on-call rotations. So, so you know, on-call being something that engineers hate. I mean, like no one really likes it in some sense, but you, know, you can imagine uh, a researcher who's like so accustomed to working on papers getting a call at 3 a.m. in the morning because the service is down. They probably are developing a, a good appreciation for like what engineers have to go through if they're if they're you know sleepy eye trying to debug a model that that is now down and someone's complaining and blah blah part of the world you know uh, that's a little extreme but but I've I've seen it happen and and it's maybe not the craziest thing in the world.
0: Yeah, I do agree that uh, the approach with different teams works a lot. Uh, uh... Worse than uh, embedded approach when yeah. it's one team. Sure. What I sure. also saw is uh, if you have an embedded team, you still have tasks that are done by searcher, tasks that are done by the engineers, and they kind of still form these uh, you know little silos in the mm-hmm. team. Uh, does that happen uh, usually, and how to actually make them work uh, together?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think I think it can happen. Uh, and I think it really is a function of sometimes it's a function of like the leadership as well. There, right? I mean, how much are the people that are either the product managers or or the, the technical managers that are making sure that that there is active collaboration going on? I think that, yeah. I mean, people will always people will always default to the things they're comfortable with. Uh, I think that's just a human characteristic. I mean, people like to do things they're comfortable with, but I think that that's where. A lot of the times, uh, if you have like, good leaders that might like, step in and say, all right, if something is getting too solid off, making sure that there is very active flow of communication all the time and that you know there's updates happening and uh, you're kind of fostering that collaboration as much as you can, uh, then that's, I think, where things, get, things are most productive, honestly. Um, and I think it can be done well. I, I really have seen it work. Uh, I've seen the embedded model work incredibly well. And incredibly high-performance teams that have, that have come out of the embedded model that I've been involved with. Um, and it's just, it does require deliberate effort on the part of whoever oversees the team.
0: Yeah. I imagine that uh, if a team is working in sprints, so let's say a sprint is two weeks okay. and uh, they say, okay, for the next two weeks, the entire team is working on okay. checking a hypothesis right? And then the engineers, okay, now I have to, you know, open this Jupyter that I don't like and uh, experiment with others, right? And then the week after, okay, now that we have this pickle file, let's everyone together deploy it, right? And then data scientists, oops, like, what is this Terraform thing, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, we joke about it, but I think that's that's absolutely right. Um, it's funny because there's organizations that they don't even really specify the roles that, uh, like DoorDash apparently doesn't specify the exact roles that, that each of the scientists, you know, they don't like specifically pigeonhole people into roles. They really just encourage fluidity in the kind of responsibilities that people have. And so, you know, you can imagine in that situation, people end up working on things they like to work on, but they also are forced to learn a lot of new things, like the data scientist who has to learn Terraform or, or you know, the researcher that has to open up a, a Jupyter notebook. <laughs> Yeah.
0: Interesting. Uh, in uh, in case of DoorDash, how do they call, uh, do, do they just call everyone engineers or do they yeah, call it, like staff? Uh, yeah. Or...
1: That I don't know. I actually don't know what the title is, but I know that they are, they're very flexible about, for example, what a data scientist works on mm-hmm. and, and also what an engineer works on. You know, they, they're very, there's a lot of fluidity in how they, they actually, uh, you know, like I said, they don't pigeonhole people into the responsibilities. They literally just say, "Yeah, if you want to, if you're the data scientist and you want to be touching on some production code, you know, go ahead. Um, you're going to feel—I mean, you're going to feel more motivated doing it, and and you probably should even take you know take a look at it because it'll it'll help you. I, I think that you know when you do that, you get much more diverse and uh, well balanced ML practitioners.
0: And we already have a question from Raw about full-stack data scientists. Perfect. And I think this is something we actually also wanted to cover. Uh, so maybe we can talk uh, a bit about that. So uh, what are your thoughts uh, about this uh, full-stack data scientists? Like, who are they? What do they do?
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it's an interesting term because uh, I, I subscribe to it a lot. But I think that in some ways, a full-stack data scientist is similar to an ML engineer in some ways. I think the responsibilities can be very similar. Uh, I think that for a lot of especially for young machine learning organizations it's or ones that are really just getting their machine learning efforts started i think it's important to have someone who can really span the full stack of responsibilities so sometimes a you know teams that i've that i've worked with and collaborated with is they'll say hey we're looking to get into data science and so we should just hire data scientists and i, and I always am like saying, well, yes you, you should have a data scientist but be careful of the kind of person that you're picking because you don't want someone who you're just gonna say, hey, here's some data, go deal with some data, right? In that data science 1.0 way of thinking about things. You really do want someone who can, who feels comfortable going from you know, the data science work, the actual analyzing and building the models to then also ultimately either doing the deployment and the engineering themselves or is very comfortable interfacing with engineers. And so I think that, you know, uh, my friends and I think he's been on this on the podcast as well. Eugene wrote about the full stack data scientist. I, I think I very much subscribe to that way of thinking about things. I, I think that the a lot of the best people I've known are ones that are kind of a jack of all trades in some sense. Um, you know, that has obviously has the pros and cons. But being able to make that full transition from one to the other, I think, makes you way well, way better versed in all the problems that come up in deploying a fully fledged data product. Um, and so I think the full stack data science is this new role or new role. I mean, it's like relatively, it's been a few years now, but, um, somebody who can just like handle all those tasks from the deployment, as well as the, the sort of machine learning, the pure machine learning aspects.
0: Mm-hmm. So they are more engineers because they can just, uh, you know, go ahead and, uh, do whatever it takes yeah. to, yeah. I don't know, to deploy or to test something, but they're still also data scientists. They still need to experiment, uh, uh, with different things and maybe be able to train a model be it a regression model be it a classification right. model be okay. it uh, i don't know image uh, classification or you know okay. visual classification so they can do that maybe they will not f- train an NLP, nlp model as good as nlp researcher would yeah. do this mm-hmm. but maybe they will have uh, a model that is 80 percent accurate right that uh, and then spend the time deploying it and uh and uh, exactly. yeah, you you mentioned this NLP is a long tail uh, kind yeah. of problem. So you you don't spend a lot of time to get it to eighty percent of accuracy, and then you spend immense amount of time to you know to cover the remaining twenty. So yeah. for the first twenty, uh, for the first eighty percent, you need a full stack data scientist, right? And then for I, the rest, I think I forget way.
1: Mm-hmm. And honestly, I think there's a lot of business problems where you maybe don't even need the full hundred uh, percent. A lot of Products that I've seen people work on is ones where they they build assistive AI technology, right? They build assistive data science technology, ones where they anticipate that we're never going to get 100%. So if we can at least handle 90% really well, then we can always find some smart way of doing a human in the loop type of thing where we can defer the stuff that we're not as confident about uh, in a good way. And so you're absolutely right. I think that for actually, you know, I would go even so far as to say for a lot of business use cases, you don't even need. 99.9, you know, exact state-of-the-art. You need maybe 90%, but then something robust around it to, to make it better. And, and that really does take you most of the way there.
0: Yeah, right. So if um, a machine learning uh, researcher um, is listening to this conversation, would you give them any advice to improve uh, their engineering skills?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that uh, absolutely. And I think that I, I w- always encourage diffusion. I mean, you know, I've I've gone from one to the other and 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 back in some sense. Like I've gone both directions, and uh, I've always felt that when I came back, I was I just was so much more competent at a lot of things. Um, you know, even like I said, when I came back to Amazon and was more of this machine learning engineer role, I just felt so much more productive at like, what I was doing, so much faster about iterating on ideas, even from a research standpoint. So I do think that researchers should be deliberate about learning to engineer systems. Well, uh, I think they should take the time to build out those engineering fundamentals. And so, you know, that means from an exercise standpoint, I think that even if you just do it for yourself, it doesn't even have to be in the business context. I mean, it's great to be in the business context, but even if you're just trying to learn on your own, going through that full pipeline yourself will be very informative, right? So don't just train the model in Jupiter Hub go to the next step, right? Actually, like, do try and deploy it, do, do try and put it onto AWS or, or whatever cloud provider you're using, really go through those, those steps. Uh, and so I think that's one thing you can do is, is just force yourself to come to appreciate a lot of those aspects. And then I think the other thing is uh, that I found incredibly useful in my time in, in different contexts. Uh, if you can get, if you're a researcher who can get an engineer or someone else to, to do you know, kind of code reviews on your code, I think that's one of the fastest ways to learn a lot about how to engineer systems. Uh, when you have someone, especially that's more experienced than you looking at the stuff that you're writing and telling you, Hey, this is not great, or maybe you can do this a little bit better or, or something like that. It's the, the time, you know, the time to how much you learn is, is immense. I mean, it's really immense. Uh, I remember, <laughs> you know, I've gone through so many poor, poor code reviews in my time and each time I just felt like I was getting so much better. Like, Oh wow. I didn't even think about how to do that. And a lot of engineering lessons were learned that way.
0: So it's basically asking somebody to sit with you together and go through, sure. uh, the code line by line, not just, sure. uh, okay. Uh, check my pull request and, uh, looks good to me, right? <laughs> okay. yeah, not that, not,
1: yeah, not not like when you're uh, when you have your friends who you just want to merge something into master and you say, hey, can you just, you know, just okay, fine. Yeah, here it goes. No, literally someone who will destroy your code in some sense, you know, real, I mean, like, you know, not literally, but I'm saying someone who will constructively help you you, you build mm-hmm. it out. Yeah.
0: Okay. So first, uh, you said uh, be deliberate about learning engineering. So yeah. it's not like uh, don't treat it as a afterthought. Thought. Okay, let me first uh, you know do this hacky thing, and then let's see if I ever need engineering. Okay. Uh, and then the second is uh, get somebody to sit with you and review your code. Okay. okay. And likewise, uh, if there is uh, an engineer listening for this um, podcast right now, what advice would you give to them to improve their um, to be I don't know more research minded?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that part of the, the building of the empathy there also comes down to understanding how researchers think. So I think that for engineers, if you can take the time to even just you know read some papers and start to see how researchers think about problems, you'll immediately start seeing what, you know, what is like a research responsibility really involve. I mean, how do how do researchers think about problems and how do they think about approaches to problems? And even if you just understand the structure of a paper, you can see why experiments are done in certain ways and what does it mean to really, very deliberately and, and methodically run an experiment to validate a hypothesis, right? And that's something that engineers that have never read a paper don't really understand. Like, what, what does it even mean to really do research? Um, I think papers are a fantastic way to do that. And I think if you really want to go the next step to really understand how you know how to run and how to build, uh, how to do good research and how to be more research minded, is if you do go through the exercise of trying to try to improve on the state of the art of something, right? I mean, even if unsuccessfully, if you take a state of the art model and you say, well, I'm gonna try and improve this a little bit better, going through that exercise of trying to add something new to the architecture or, or, you know, uh, or try X, Y, or Z thing. And you know, not, it's not just about adding the modeling aspect, but then going through the, the process of like setting up your system so you can run experiments and then keeping track of those experiments and going back and saying, well, maybe this didn't work. How can I do something else? Going through, I think, that exercise, you know, in the same way that for researchers doing the engineering exercise will teach you a lot, I and mean, going through the research exercise will we'll also teach you a lot about uncertainty and work and, uh, you know, how you can do things in a way we keep track of things very well and, and, and iterate on things constructively
0: and by improving state of the art uh, i don't think you mean like going there and beating the you know first position in ImageNet, by uh, improving yeah, improving mean, accuracy that would
1: be great i mean if, if you can do that then more power to you um yeah. Uh, but yeah i mean i think like just just trying to get to the point where you're even just taking a state-of-the-art system and even like fiddling with it a little bit right to see what does it mean like how hard is this really if i took something off of the Transformers library or something which is supposed to be state-of-the-art. I mean, first, can I reproduce the state-of-the-art? And two, what happens if I start like adding a, a thing here and there? I mean, great, if you, if you can build, the, you know, if you can train state-of-the-art systems and that's fantastic, then, then you maybe have another job waiting for you somewhere else, you know, a deep mind or whatever, but, uh, but you know, even just trying to pull it in and see what does it mean to have a state-of-the-art system is, is also informative
0: and it probably maybe doesn't have to be state-of-the-art worldwide it can be just the state of uh uh, within your company right so there is maybe a a model i don't know a recommender system or some classification now you can try to figure out what's going on there and uh, how the this thing is working and uh, maybe you'll notice some things that could be improved and then you can come up with a suggestion and then yeah. try to improve it and this way of course you need to track everything track your experiments and then to be able to show later to others that okay yeah i actually tried this and it works here is yeah. the experiment let's now integrate this into our into our system let's improve it right, That's right.
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah.
0: and your first point was about reading papers um, mm-hmm. but i remember how for me like i was a java developer and then i uh, got into masters and then uh, like I was doing my master thesis and then I needed to read papers. And then I opened this paper and it's a lot of math. The language is so boring. Like it puts me to sleep because uh, academics like to, that was my impression. I don't know if it's true, but sometimes they are written in a language that make it sound more complex than it, it, it should be, right? So how do you actually go about reading these papers when, uh, you know, half of the symbols on the paper, you don't understand. So maybe you recognize Sigma for, um, (laughs) you know, for some, but for others, uh, yeah. So how do you do that?
1: That's right, yeah. Uh, Your researchers are definitely guilty of that. Not even from a joke that's actually very true, I think, because, you know, this is like a whole separate topic, a conversation around how, how you get something accepted into a conference and how do you, maybe inflate something so that it's a little bit, so it sounds cooler and you add the map to make it seem cooler and more sophisticated than it is. That's a whole separate topic of discussion, but, uh, but you're right. I mean, I think that, that especially if you don't come from that world, these papers can be very dense and very difficult to read. Uh, I think that there's, there's alternatives. I think the one thing that is, that's really good that has happened because of how popular machine learning has become is people have gotten really good at summarizing and trying to you know create their own understanding of papers, and so you have a lot of great tutorials. Sometimes they're interactive even tutorials that people have written for for a lot of models and, and papers about models. So if something is too dense for you on the in its raw form, like in first a primary source, then there's certainly secondary sources that people have written that are they're well they're getting done well and explained well. And then I think that the other thing that can help is. You know if you if you're committed to going through that exercise then I would collaborate with the researcher. I mean I would pull in a researcher to say like hey if something doesn't make sense uh, why, what does this mean? Like I get the sigma but like can you explain what this is doing? Um, and you know kind of adding that layer of collaboration will also just be good for, for team building. And and you know that's what researchers are supposed to be good at. They 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 should be able to give you insights. Um, as far as the boredom is concerned, that question, <laughs> that aspect is, is a bit harder to solve <laughs> okay, whether or not you find it boring. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so basically like the same advice uh, okay. for, uh, for researchers to put in machine learning engineers or engineers okay. to do code okay. review. You can actually apply here the other way. So just okay. get a researcher and uh, try to read the paper together and ask them to translate uh, this thing for you. It and uh, ask questions okay cool and also i think now many papers have actually have code either from the authors or somebody tried to reproduce the results and uh, put the code uh, somewhere so i think that for engineers could also be helpful like maybe engineers understand code better although i'm not sure if this code is written uh, by researchers, if it's actually the case. Yes, could be uh, difficult to understand maybe, but I think, yeah, So probably going through the code is, could be even easier uh, than...
1: If you the... find a good code base, absolutely. But a uh, big caveat to the people that are listening is, you know, and this is something I've seen in my career and I've always, whenever I work with researchers, tried to get them out of this mindset is research code is not the best in the world. Uh, it can be stale, not updated very frequently. And yeah, you're going to... Good luck. So if it like it's almost like if it doesn't work from the first go, good luck diving into it and trying to understand what the matrices are doing and, you know, what each represents. The translation is a whole separate issue.
0: Yeah, right. So let's say somebody is listening for this podcast, but they're, I don't know, doing their bachelor and they're thinking, okay, should I go to industry uh, um, and to work as an engineer or should I go to uh, get a master's and then do a PhD and do research? Yeah. So Do you have any uh, advice for people who need to decide what they like more and how they choose basically?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's something where one of the most important things is really to be introspective. I mean, you really have to ask yourself, like what, what parts of these problems am I most interested in? So if you understand what each of the roles is doing, right. If you understand that machine learning engineer, you'll be handling a lot more engineering nowadays or, or, or. You know, if you're doing full stack data going to be a lot of engineering. If you're aware of those responsibilities, then that's important. But right? so you first have to understand what are you getting? What, is, what are you getting yourself into in either situation? One is you're going to be doing a lot of deployments, monitoring, you know, handling all these engineering aspects, maybe a little bit of modeling, but not really as much nowadays. And then on the science aspect, you're really just going to be working in typically open ended problems, a lot of experiments, you know, the tooling might be a little bit different. Really, if you have to, you know, if you understand that base level, here's what each role entails, then you can ask yourself, well, okay, is this something that is one feel to me more than the other? I think in the ideal situation, if you're really early on in your career, I would say go and try try and do a little bit of both, honestly, Mm -hmm. if you can. Um, I think that one of the really great things about being early in your career is you have the flexibility to work on internships where you can, you know, do things that maybe you will never do in your career, but that at least you can see what it's like to do that. Uh, like I remember, very early in my career, I did I did you know nanofabrication work in an, in an electrical engineering lab where I was literally you know wearing like a Breaking Bad bunny suit, um, you know tr- you know I literally growing carbon nanotubes and I spent a good like four or five months doing that and I was like this is cool but it's not something that I can see myself doing long term uh, and so giving yourself the opportunity to to try that even just for a little bit it's a pretty low risk way to see if something really resonates with you. Uh, And then if you can see yourself doing that farther along along in your career.
0: Yeah, I don't know if uh, this is good advice, but what worked for me was uh, I did a master's and in Germany, master's are free. I know that in um, the States, it's not uh, the case, but I needed to write my master's thesis. And for that, I needed to read a lot of papers and I needed to experiment a lot and uh, by doing this for half a year I realized that uh, maybe this is not the thing I enjoy doing most so it could be a way of checking as well just uh, go and do something like you don't have to do masters for that especially like if it costs an arm and a leg um, but
1: uh, yeah yeah if you're at an institution that has the research labs then um, I always recommend for undergrads to do research um, mm-hmm. even just to try it. I mean most places have really good research professors and you know they're always you know if you're, if you're working with a phd student they're always happy to have someone to help so if you just go and knock on a phd student's door and say hey i can like code pretty well Can i mm-hmm. can do some research with you i've rarely seen someone say no
0: yeah okay I, I know we should be wrapping up but i have one more question which we, you will probably like i wanted to ask you a few words about your project confetti uh yeah what is it and uh, well, yeah what is it for and what is there
1: Yeah. 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 So, so it's a project that a friend of mine and I started about a year and a half ago. And a lot of it, the motivation, you know, it kind of, it was born over like a dinner conversation once in in the Bay area. And really we came to this conclusion that we had been doing so much, you know, interviewing and and we'd gone through so many different parts of our career, thinking about machine learning and and the right machine learning role in data science. and, And, and we found ourselves sort of recreating and reinventing ways of doing things and, and ways of preparing for these things. So we had done maybe between the two of us like hundreds of interviews, and every time we found ourselves like kind of patching together different resources to understand how do I prepare for this? What's the, what are the kind of questions they're going to be asked? And so when it comes to data science and machine learning roles, there's really not as easy of a way. You know, it's not like the uh, that you know, there's not as standardized of a process for preparing for these roles. And, and not just from the interview standpoint, I mean, I think the interview standpoint is really important and that's something that people, you know, there's not good tools to do that. But then even just from your career standpoint, right? We talked about earlier in the conversation about data science 1.0 data science 2.0. I mean, I saw that transition of course in my career about how the, the, the role evolved. And so Confetti was really our kind of, it's like a tool that we built to really kind of scratch our own itch and say, well, if I were starting today, what would I want someone to tell me about not only how I get a job in these fields, but what I should be thinking about going into a career in this field. And how do I you know, dispel and share that knowledge with other people um, so that others don't make, you know, so others can learn from my mistakes, which I've made more than, more than my fair share of. And so Confetti was really this, this, this platform that we built to try and codify a lot of these best practices that we have learned over the course of our time around how do I prepare to be a machine learning engineer? How do I prepare to be a data engineer? What are the kinds of things I should be thinking about? What are the kinds of resources I should be thinking about and, and, and using to learn? Uh, and, and so far, like the reception has been very warm. People have found it very useful and people have gotten jobs using this platform, which, which we're really happy to see. But you know, a lot of it is really just about getting people to learn from some of the stuff that we learned and, uh, and, and then just start ahead of us in some sense than when we were when we were just bumbling through it in the early days.
0: That's pretty nice of you to put this together and make it available for others. Okay. Yeah, thanks. So um, how can people find you?
1: Me personally.
0: Yeah, if they want to ask a question, like follow-up okay. question. Yeah. Uh,
1: uh I'm pretty active on Twitter. So by all means, you know, direct message me on Twitter. Relatively active on LinkedIn. But uh yeah, I mean so those are two of the platforms come to mind. Uh, I have a personal site where I think it's relatively easy to get in touch with me. So I'm, I'm always happy to help people. I really uh, am very deliberate about when I get emails or, or messages, I really try to answer all of them because I do believe in paying things forward. I mean, so much of where, where I've come in my career is just because of the generosity of people's time and, and the things that people have taught me. So uh, I'm always happy to talk to people that are just getting started, that you know, want to bounce ideas off of or have questions about how to do something. I'm always happy to talk.
0: Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks uh, for coming today. Thanks for sharing your experience. Uh, uh, that was really great. And thanks everyone for joining us today, for watching, for asking questions. And um, yeah, I think um, that's all for today.
1: Thank you, Alex. We really appreciate being here. It was a great conversation.
0: Yeah. So um, I guess uh, that's it then. So goodbye. Bye. Have a great rest of the day and have a great weekend.